This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Laura Suter. And this week, we're going to be talking about those latest inflation figures that have just come out and what they mean for us all. And also, we're going to be chatting to an infrastructure investment specialist about how those type of investments might be a good way to combat inflation. And this week, I'm joined by Danny Houston. Hi, Laura. We've got another fund manager interview with a specialist in small companies about how to spot a gem. And we've got the latest update in the Elon Musk Twitter saga. But even better, we're joined by Jenny Owen for a Mad Money segment about paying for things with your hand. And we're also going to be looking at the markets news of the week as usual. But let's start with the inflation news. So as we record this on Wednesday, the 13th of April, um, the latest data has just been released that shows that inflation hit 7% in March. And it's only headed one way, and that is up. So Danny, you've been delving into the figures and looking about what's been causing those price rises and maybe where it's headed as well. Yeah, and at 7%, although that is absolutely massive, it doesn't look quite as awful as the 8.5% figure, which came out yesterday, the US inflation figure. But I'll talk a bit more about that later on. Um, Laura, there is no way to sugarcoat what's happening to prices because pretty much everything is significantly more expensive than it was a year ago. And as you say, the situation looks like it's just going to get worse. Now, one of the big things which played into the March story was the huge increase in the price that people were paying at the pump. Petrol prices were up by more than 12 pence a litre in a single month, diesel by 18 pence. And it's fair to say that the Chancellor's duty cut has done very little to help households. We also had energy prices skyrocketing because Of course, we had the sort of filtering through of the October price cap. So although we've not seen the worst of it, we're certainly not seeing the kind of bills that businesses are having to pay. You know, consumers are still feeling it. And, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has certainly played a big part as real sanctions or those self-imposed disrupted the supply of oil and sent the price of a barrel of the black stuff soaring. That, of course, has had knock-on, as I said, to energy prices of businesses, and they are passing on those price hikes to us, to the consumer. So I was quite struck by the fact that the phrase records broken, the highest since the series began, was used over and over again in the update from the Office for National Statistics. Clothing and footwear, furniture and household equipment, and you know all those lovely things that we like to do, going to restaurants, going to shows, that kind of thing. The prices had all hiked at record highs. But the real issue for a lot of households, of course, is food. And those prices had surged by 5.9%, the fastest since 2011. Um, And I think, you know, when people visit the supermarket at the moment, they are having to make really difficult decisions. Now, 
the big thing, of course, is that we haven't yet seen the impact of the rising of the price cap. And I know that a lot of people will have got their bill in the last few days, taken a look and just thought, whoa, where has that come from? And of course, next month's figures, we're going to start to see that come through. But a big indicator that this is only just going one way is also what's called the producer producer price index. And what we're seeing there is input costs, you know, those raw materials, things like oil and metals, they have surged almost 20% and the output costs by around 12%. So I guess it's some businesses are managing to stomach some of the costs, but a lot of the costs are being passed on to consumers. And, you know, Wage hikes and benefit hikes and pensions just not keeping pace. And in terms of people's pension savings, Laura, it's having an impact as well. Yeah, and I think it's having an impact in lots of different areas depending on what your personal circumstances are. So the first thing to talk about, which we have mentioned on the podcast before, is that the state pension is only increasing by about 3%. So now if we look at inflation being 7%, what you're seeing there is anyone to who is entirely reliant on the state pension for their income is effectively seeing a 4% reduction in their income. Um, Now, some people out there who are working might think, well, I only got a small pay rise this year. I didn't get one that matches inflation. But obviously, the thing with people who are employed, they have some options ahead of them. So if they don't like the pay rise they got, they can ask for a higher pay rise from their boss. They can look for a promotion or they can even switch jobs. People that are on the state pension don't have that ability to kind of shop around and improve their income in that respect. So that's one group that's been particularly hit by inflation. Um, And other area of of people that um, really need to bear this in mind are people that are um, in retirement and they're taking income from their own pension pot. Now, typically you would, usually with a financial advisor, you would work out you've got a pot of X amount, how much you can take from it each year um, to sustain your lifestyle Um, but also to ensure that that pot lasts for as long as possible into your retirement. Now, um, if your costs are increasing, then the amount that you need to live on is also rising. And so those people have two quite tricky decisions or tricky choices, I guess, to make. One is they take more money out of their pension so they can maintain their living standards um, and accommodate that higher rise in prices. But the more money that they take from their pension each year, the faster that that pot is going to reduce and and the sooner it's going to run out. And even increasing your income by what might seem a relatively small amount can have quite a big impact on the number of years that that investment pot will last for. Your other option is to keep the same payout that you've been taking from your pension and just have to budget and cut your um, outgoings to accommodate that what is now a relatively lower income in relation to inflation. So um, some tricky things that people need to think about there and need to probably crunch some numbers for their own circumstances in terms of whether they can afford to take more out of their pension or whether they need to make cutbacks in their day-to-day life. Um, And then the final area, I think, is people that aren't anywhere near retirement um, but are paying into a pension at the moment. And I think when we all feel the crunch and when we all feel like our income isn't going far enough and we need to make cutbacks, it can be quite easy to think that you'll just cut your 
um, pension contributions, either entirely or reduce them down a bit, because that seems like you're putting money away for years and years in the future, and it seems like an easy cut to make. But actually, it can have a really big impact on um, your future retirement pot, particularly if you're in say your 30s or your 40s, that's the money that has a really long time to grow before you actually need it. And so um, people need to, I guess it's just a cautionary note that people really need to think about the impact that that's going to have on their pension pot and ultimately on the lifestyle they can live in retirement before they just think this is an easy cost to cut and this solves some of my problems. So um, it's really thinking about all of those different factors depending on where you're at in in your life. but I think sticking with the theme of inflation, I think we should look at what's been happening to markets this week, because Danny, I, I imagine companies must be starting to mention inflation in their results, either because it's a concern for businesses or it's a headwind that they see coming down the down the pipeline. So have we seen lots of companies talking about it? Yeah, just about every company which is announcing their results at the moment is talking about this. Let's start with Tesco. Um, 2021, another strong year for the retailer, adjusted operating profit um, up 34.9%. So, you know, a good base to start from. But it was the outlook that had investors really rushing to ditch their shares today because the firm said, look, we are laser focused keeping the price of a shop down, but also acknowledge that there were real uncertainties in what's going on externally. You know, people cutting back on what they were going to spend at the shops. We certainly had some um, retail figures out um, a couple of days ago, uh, which said that there'd been a 15% decline in footfall during March as people, you know, really try to cut their cloth accordingly. And as a result, Tesco is predicting that profits will be slightly lower this year because it's it's battling to keep market share. Obviously, we've got the discounters very much back in the frame as everyone's looking for value. And, you know, it's cost pressures. It's got extra to pay for labor, just that all of those uh, raw materials, those products that it gets in, everything is costing more. And it's trying to sort of figure out a way to balance that, to try and keep prices down for customers, but also, you know, keep the business profitable. Similar story for Deliveroo, the food delivery business. Sure, its share price dropped to new lows as if it could get any lower, really. Um, It said that the number of orders that had actually been going up, which was good news, uh, and actually the results themselves were, were pretty resilient considering, but the bit that people picked out was the amount being spent per order has gone down. So, you know, consumers not cutting out, but cutting back. ASOS, a similar picture. It's gone from an operating profit to a loss. Its margins are declining and it's moved out of a net cash to a net debt position, which, you know, when you think about how incredibly well it was doing in the pandemic, this is not what you would expect from this retail superstore, but its outlook similarly gloomy. And one of the things that it is talking about trying to do is, is cut back on the number of returns, because clearly that does cost them. But uh, it has said that, you know, it had been hoping for a really good summer and now the outlook not so great. We also had an update from a couple of airlines. Dan and I were talking about all the travel disruption last week. Well, London listed EasyJet says 
It's hoping to have that sorted by the summer, but they're keeping an eye on things. On the plus side, bookings for the summer, they say, are getting back to pre-pandemic levels and losses are narrowing. And in fact, numbers came in better than expectation. But, you know, will people still be up for paying for a holiday if they're having to cut back elsewhere? We also had American Airlines talking about higher jet fuel and also a tight labor market in the US taking their toll. The carrier is saying that it expects the cost per available seat mile will be even higher than had been forecast. It's been enjoying the strongest demand for three years. But as I said earlier, Laura, the inflation number in the US at 8.5% was blisteringly high. And it was prices at the pump again that played a huge part. But what's happening in the US is that price at the pump seems to be coming down. And there is an indication that maybe in the US, unlike in the UK, that inflation might have peaked. And sticking with the US, Danny, you talked on the podcast last week about Elon Musk's latest antics with Twitter. And I think you've got an update on that now, haven't you? Yeah, so Elon Musk had bought um, just over 9% of Twitter shares, a massive stake, making him the biggest shareholder. And Dan and I were talking about this last week. What was he going to do? He'd been offered and accepted a seat on the board. He'd done loads of tweeting about whether or not there should be an edit button or not. Lots more tweets this weekend that's just been some quite interesting ideas which were being put out there by Elon Musk. And not shortly afterwards, the current boss of Twitter, Parag Agarwal, tweeted that Elon Musk had decided not to take a seat on the board. Now, this is particularly interesting because by taking a seat on the board... Elon Musk might have, well, he would have had to, you know, think about what he was tweeting. He would have had to act in the best interest of shareholders. And I don't know about you, Laura, but he doesn't strike me as the kind of man that would like his wings clipped when it comes to having his voice out there. What do you think? No, exactly. I mean, he's not reacted particularly well to that in the past when regulators and things have come down on his tweets. So um, no, I think he serves better as a kind of maverick role out there rather than having to toe the company line. And he has turned down the seat on the board. So we're now lots of speculation about whether or not he will actually go all out and and maybe launch a bid to take Twitter on in its entirety. Um, Certainly shares fell on the news that uh, he wasn't taking that seat on the board, but they're still significantly up on they were before. And uh, just uh, today, we've also had another twist to this saga because a class action lawsuit has been initiated. It claims that investors who sold their shares before Elon Musk disclosed his stake were selling into an artificially deflated market. So, This is a story which is just going to run and run, I think. Um, But, uh, you know, totally fascinating and one to watch. We will definitely keep you updated on future weeks as well. Um, Now, we've been talking about those soaring inflation figures, and it's made investors question whether their portfolios can keep up. So Danny's been talking to Giles Frost, who's fund director of International Public Partnerships Infrastructure Investment Trust, which is a mouthful, but it's got assets all over the world from hospitals and schools to transport projects, and it aims to deliver 
crucially, inflation-linked returns to its investors. So let's listen to that. I think the first thing for anybody um, new to uh, IMPP is just explain what is it? What is INPP? Well, INPP stands for International Public Partnerships. That's perhaps the easiest part of the question. But INPP invests in public infrastructure in developed countries around the world. So principally, we invest in the UK, in Western Europe, uh, a little bit of Canada and in Australia. Uh, And what we're investing into are government-sponsored projects. So these might be schools, they might be health centres, might be courthouses, they might be gas or electricity distribution. But what unites all these assets is the fact we're paid either by government or under regimes where the government regulates the payments to us. And that means we have cash flows coming in which are of very high quality indeed. And that means that you have a, a good indication of what is going to be coming in year after year. And that's the key point from our investors' perspective, which is they most most of our investors hold IMPP because they look to the, the, the consistency of the dividend and the growth we can offer in a dividend and the inflation linkage which sits behind that. And all those things are driven by the quality of those cash flows. So the government characteristics which underlie so much of our cash flow is really fundamental to what we do. Um, we were having a, a quick chat earlier, and um, this time last year, when I was talking to people about growth stock versus value stock, growth was seen as, you know, in vogue very much. But the conversation has changed and inflation has clearly had a lot to do with that. But dividends are suddenly back in vogue. Well, and that's hopefully good for us too, because I mean, I've been doing this job for a while now. I led the IPO of this business back in 2006. Uh, and so I've sort of been through the cycle a couple of times on, on all this. And, you know, obviously what, what the message, you know, what we, the answer to your question really is, is that the market has a whole range of different participants in it. Um, uh, and we provide income. We've always focused on providing income. We've consistently grown our dividend by at least two and a half percent for every single year since we started in 2006. So so dividend growth and, and earnings quality is absolutely what we're focused on. Um, the, the fact that so much of our, our revenue is inflation linked obviously brings us to perhaps more people's attention in the current climate. And, you know, that's great, too. Um, but, yeah, that focus on income has always been what we're about. Uh, and it's great to be in, in fashion in that respect now. Another thing that is incredibly in fashion at the moment are those three little letters ESG. What is it about ESG as it relates to INPP, which makes investors so interested in in this company? Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I think, you know, responsible investment in the wider sense, obviously, is is in everyone's interest and uh, and investors are, are, are focused on it. Uh, most investors want to have a have a have a portfolio comprising responsibly invested uh, capital, and most businesses are responding to that by demonstrating what they what they do. And I think in the infrastructure space, it's much much easier for us 
um, than many others to demonstrate how what we do is for long-term benefit of, of, of everyone, really. I mean, our, the, the whole reason for our assets existing is to improve the quality of life of, of, of people in the countries where we invest. So, um, you know, we invest in transmission lines connecting offshore wind farms to the, to the mainland. So that brings renewable energy onshore. We invest in wastewater treatment project, um, projects, which clean up our rivers. Uh, we invest in schools, for instance, where, you know, young people are obviously educated. So the very nature of assets is inherently responsible, which means that demonstrating our kind of ESG credentials is, is really quite easy. It's interesting um, when you said first up, let's, let's first of all talk about infrastructure, what infrastructure is, because there's been so much discussion over the past few months about changes to energy infrastructure that's going to be needed, that a lot of people have, have sort of been possibly slightly blinkered as to all the infrastructure demands that this country right now needs. And I know that the government last year was talking an awful lot about build back better. That seems to have been set back a little bit. But just in terms of future growth, where do we stand on all these big projects? That's a really good question. And I mean, perhaps there's a little bit of context first. I mean, INPP is a big investment trust. I mean, we've got uh, close to £2.9 billion worth of assets uh, in the fund already. Um, That's our our net asset value currently. And all those projects are very long-term projects. And they're long-term in every, every, every way, because they're, they're, investment uh, life is long term which is great in terms of of our our revenue we get revenue over a long term as well which is what our investors want but they're also a long-term ingestation so most of these big projects uh, take a long term long time to plan they take some time to build and then they have very long operational lives so i mean i think you're right about your comment in terms of the focus has kind of moved away from build back better a little bit and you know we're not seeing as many kind of big trophy infrastructure projects being brought forward in the UK as as as, as perhaps we we had expected a year or so ago but you know in all honesty, that doesn't really bother us very much because our existing assets are themselves very long term. We don't need to be acquiring new assets all the time. And, you know, we've kind of got used to factoring in political delays in the gestation process of new assets anyway. So, you know, it's, you know when you've been doing this as long as we have, you're kind of used to these sorts of delays. Maybe that's not a very optimistic answer, but it's a realistic one. So, you know, a point for our investors is that, is that these sorts of kind of, you know, political delays don't really impact us in, in, in any way apart from being slightly annoying. Infrastructure, it, it's a massive buzzword in the United States because of, of the great big infrastructure plan by the Biden administration. But there are so many changes which need to happen to support the UK's changing population, the changing population across much of Europe, and, and clearly decarbonisation and climate change play a huge part in that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think we are in a sort of golden age of infrastructure, aren't we? So, so um, you know, the first golden age was probably the, the, the you know, the Victorian age when, when um, things became mechanised and, and, and infrastructure had to respond to, to that. And the second golden age is, is kind of now, in my view, because 
so much is being having is is being forced to change, you know, particularly by decarbonisation agendas, uh, but also because um, you know uh, demographics, ageing populations, the changing energy energy mix, they all lead to a need for different sorts of of infrastructure. Uh, you know, I was talking recently to some people about um, carbon capture and storage, which many people have heard of as being, you know, as being perhaps a partial solution to some uh, of the CO2 emissions that, um, that that we make currently. And, you know, carbon capture and storage systems kind of involve a network of pipes which collect carbon dioxide from uh, large scale emitters and take them to 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 see to to bury that carbon dioxide under the under the crust of the earth so in a sense they're the kind of opposite of a of an asset we already have in our pipeline which is gas distribution which basically brings gas out of the earth and into people's homes so some of the techniques we've got around infrastructure assets can i think be applied to some of these newer assets too when we're talking about these big projects, uh, anybody looking at what's happened with HS2 will know that there can be incredible delays, costs can spiral, there is a risk associated with infrastructure projects. How do you go about mitigating that risk? It's a really, it's a, another really good question because, I mean, HS2, as, as, as you probably know, is a, is a project being being managed by the public sector so so there's no private capital in 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 hs2 impp is not invested in hs2 um and i mean when when the government about 20 years ago first in the uk first started using private capital to fund public infrastructure one of the reasons for doing so was at the time they believed that using private sector project management would be more effective and efficient in delivering projects on time. And I think that's been a debate which has kind of raged on and off for the last 20 years or so. And you know, I think it's probably time we had that debate again because projects like HS2 and Crossrail, which again is a is a publicly funded and managed project, clearly have had you know very, very well known, well known issues. Um, in my experience, private sector management of projects does bring better results in terms of timeliness. Um, so I think you know that is something for, for, for people to think about. And the way we manage that risk is generally speaking in one of two ways, either we don't either we don't invest until a project is physically complete, or if we do invest in in the construction phase, we do so on the basis that that we are managing or have significantly significant input into the construction process, and that includes having absolutely. Um, bulletproof, so far as we can, contracts with um, construction companies around having fixed prices and fixed dates for completion with quite substantial penalties for, for missing those dates. So I think some of those disciplines um, are, are really, really important for, for effective investment into infrastructure. Uh, and you know, our biggest construction project at the moment is the Thames Tideway Tunnel, which is a big sewage project, a uh, big wastewater tunnel being built under the Thames. And whilst that has been a little bit delayed by COVID, uh, in other respects, that project is going really, really well. COVID put a spoke in, in an awful lot of works now we have the situation in Ukraine, which is forcing up commodity prices. It's also going to impact inflation 
for the much longer term than the Bank of England certainly had been anticipating earlier uh, in the year. Those are going to impact your business too. Uh, oh, oh, very much so. I mean, I think I think that uh, we're not immune from from worldwide pressures. Although I don't think we are kind of impact, as impact as many many other other businesses or investment trusts might be. I mean, first of all, obviously we have no investments in Ukraine itself. We have no investments in 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 Central Europe. We've always only invested in sort of top tier OECD countries, as I think I mentioned mentioned earlier on. So there was no direct impact on our investments in terms of their their um, revenues or, or, or valuation. Inflation, however, does impact everybody. Uh, and, and I think one of the key attractions of our of our fund for many investors is the inflation linkage in our revenues. So those contracts I referred to earlier on with government bodies or those assets which have regulated payment mechanisms, so effectively we're paid through people's electricity or gas bills. Those mechanisms generally all have some linkage to inflation. So across our portfolio for every 1% increase in average inflation above our base case expectation, we should get a 0.7% pickup in returns. So we don't say we're fully inflation hedged, um, but we have a significant level of inflation protection. Uh, and that obviously, as you said, is is very much to the, to the fore of everyone's mind currently. Inflation, certainly something that's keeping a lot of people up at night. Just to end on, what are you most excited about for the business over the next sort of 12 to 24 months? It's, it's, it's two things, really. I mean, I think I think that IMPP offers a really nice blend from my perspective because we've got a really big, significant portfolio of assets which are performing well and they've got a great history of performance. We've delivered consistent dividend growth uh, every year since we started. So, you know, our, our, our foundation stone is very strong. It's it's a, it's great to be doing new things off the, off the back of, a, of an established, functioning, effective business model. Um, but I think the opportunity set is is doing more of the same. And, and, you know, those macro trends that we talked about earlier on, you know, mean that we are going to see more infrastructure, whether it's in the UK or the US or, or Australasia. Um, and, you know, working in a growing and developing market is a really exciting place to be. So, you know, our, our focus is not to turn up risk because ultimately our investors want very, very predictable, robust, solid um, inflation-linked income from us. But we think the number of assets which offer that in the future ought to increase. Giles, lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And in our second fund manager interview this week, we've been chatting about small companies, small caps, as they're also known. They've historically been a great place to invest, but occasionally they go through a bad patch, such as now. Fund manager Paul Marriage has seen plenty of good and bad times in his career at various investment houses, including Insight Investments, Schroeder's, Kazanov, and now Telworth. Dan Coatsworth met up with Paul to get his thoughts on the current state of the market and how the Telworth UK Smaller Companies Fund is a bit different to other funds in the small cap space. So, Paul, it's been a difficult start to 2022 for small caps with the IA UK Smaller Companies sector down 35% year to date. Why have smaller companies performed worse than larger companies in general so far this year? 
Yeah, it has definitely been a, a, a pretty difficult start. So I think you, you've got to try and put it into context um, uh, over where we've been in the last kind of 12 months. Um, so, uh, and maybe even a little bit longer. So if you just give me a, uh, uh, give me a moment to give you that perspective. So if you think about small caps pre-pandemic, uh, small caps do well when people are positive about the UK economy and people are positive about equities. Yeah? So they're a risk on asset. Uh, so back pre-pandemic, I think people felt that you know the pains of Brexit and election woes of 19 got slightly behind us, whatever your view was on those outcomes, political certainty, uh, and UK companies were very front foot. In fact, those companies we spoke to at the beginning of 20 were really very front foot, very excited about life uh, and thinking we were in a good place finally after a lot of um, post the Brexit referendum kind of uncertainty. So then the pandemic hit us, which obviously created that kind of zero market in small caps in March 20. And we had recovery around the vaccine and that carried us through the first half of 21. Uh, and then the second half of 21, we started to worry about supply chain issues. And in August, we probably saw the first supply chain warnings and they've kind of rumbled on actually sort of ever since, but gathered momentum in, in Q3 and Q4 last year. Uh, and then as we came into the back end of the year, people were a bit more worried about Omicron, uh, and how that would pan out. And actually, right at the end of the year, people got into that state of mind that we probably had at the beginning of this year, 22, that Omicron was probably not going to derail the UK economy too badly, uh, and actually small caps were okay again. So small caps entered the end of 22, actually, in slightly better form, uh, 21, rather, and started 22 feeling front foot, but that didn't last very long, uh, as perhaps the the wider macroeconomic, global macro concerns around supply chain inflation and stuff. Uh, made equities unattractive and then clearly the Ukraine crisis came in, uh, built momentum, I guess, in February and obviously uh, first missile in, in March. So, uh, and small caps are not the kind of go-to asset when you've got uh, geopolitical uncertainty. And obviously this was a new level of geopolitical uncertainty. And, and you know, they weren't in a good place at the beginning of March. They bounced back a bit from there, which is good. Um, and I think the key difference perhaps right now is that um, you know, small cap companies we meet are generally fairly front foot uh, at the moment. If you've met those companies in March 20, they really have no visibility at all. So uh, it, it, the tough start reflects uh, a really horrible environment for equities and for risky equities, I think more so than UK small caps per se being a bad asset class. I've been doing this for 20 odd years uh, and you get these periods when kind of no one wants to know, no one cares. And we just crack on with it, uh, and then uh, because we know that history tells us that those longer-term returns for small caps are excellent. So keep our head down, keep picking stocks, and we'll get through these tough periods. Yeah, I was going to say, if you if you look back over ten years, um, the sort of investment association UK smaller company sectors returned one hundred and ninety-one percent, and that's you know nearly twice as much as the the, the sort of the all company sector, which is one hundred and six percent. So obviously, yeah. like you say, that you know. History does suggest that small caps, yeah. when it works, they, they work incredibly well, don't they? Yeah, that's why, you know, uh, talking my own book, but you know, that's why you should have a bit of small cap in every portfolio, maybe not loads, but a little bit. And that's kind of why the sector exists, I guess. Uh, uh, you know, if you just think about it in the simplest terms, we are buying companies at an earlier stage in their life when they're growing, you know, fast. Uh, so if you're, the analogy I often make is, uh, you know, we are, buying toddlers, these aren't brand new companies, they're not newborns that need all sorts of care and feeding and stuff like, like perhaps early stage investors have to do with new companies. We buy toddlers, they can walk and talk and feed themselves, they need help to grow, that's what we provide with our shelving and our investment. 
and we sell them when they become difficult teenagers. And in that time, you know, in share price terms, they've gone from three to 14 or 13, and therefore we've made four or five times our money. So to, to, to put it in that, that, that rather simple human analogy, I think it's quite effective. That's, that's where small cap investors are trying to make money. Yeah. So, what, so, so in terms of the, the Telworth UK Smaller Companies Fund, how do you think that differs from sort of other small cap funds? Yeah, so I guess the key things would be that we are really focused on being in the middle of small cap. You know, for us, core small cap is market caps between 100 and 500 million. Uh, so we're not micro cap managers who are focusing on those earlier stage companies. There's lots of good micro cap managers out there. Slightly different skill set. You've got to be more involved in the company and probably take slightly more long term view or just have a very large portfolio and diversify your risk that way. Uh, very illiquid. You're, you're in those stocks uh, and you can't get out of them in a hurry. Um, and uh, at the top end of UK small cap, you're moving into mid cap. And I guess that's been one of the trends in our sector is funds that perhaps with small caps 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of them have moved into the slightly more liquid end of small caps, the bottom end of mid cap, where companies are a bit more mature, maybe not growing quite as quickly, but a better research and still some great companies out there. So one of the things that we do is we try and stay in core small cap territory. We're buying companies with a market cap of one or 200 million, and we're probably selling market caps at the 750 plus type level, where you're just nudging into the FTSE 250. Um, we invest across AIM, small cap, and 250, so we're in all those indices, but in market cap terms, our, our median market cap is, is actually, I'd say probably for the sector, it's, it's relatively low, 261 million today, um, and we like to keep it in that two to 300 million space. Uh, so the smallest companies we would invest in, fresh, would be 100 million plus, and the largest positions in the portfolio we'd be selling would be over a billion. Yeah, so, I mean, your biggest holdings, Harworth, uh, yeah. which is a land and property regeneration company. Right, yeah. it, right. Is, is, that, is that quite a history of spun out of UK coal, or is that a moment? Right, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a very interesting company, Harworth. Um, we've been invested for about three years now, um, uh, and significantly added to our investment uh, 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 in that 19 period, because we felt that it was probably a winner from, from government's attempts to level up. So you're right, the history of Harworth is uh, that it's the old property assets from the National Coal Board. So imagine... Uh, originally, it was seeded with a lot of open cast coal mines, the top ends of coal mines, i.e. the surface areas, uh, are largely in the Midlands and North. So, so big areas of land, uh, which would be brownfield land. And if you think about you know, where the most sustainable growth is in the UK in terms of development sites, uh, it's large areas of land that perhaps you can't do anything else with, uh, where your development's probably going to be an improvement to that landscape, and you're providing homes, schools, jobs, industrial sites in areas which historically have been underinvested in. So it, the thematic is pretty attractive. Uh, clearly, actually, as the UK economy has developed into that very strong um, sector for distribution of larger warehouses, actually new build large industrial sites become more attractive, you know, a big driver for Haworth, but also their ability to deliver large housing projects to house builders. So you know, house builders struggle to find big sites with planning ready to go. Uh, and that's exactly what Harworth do. They provide oven-ready sites for blocks of hundreds of houses or houses, flats, schools, et cetera, new towns, new communities. Um, and actually, generally, those new communities have proved to be pretty popular because it's high-quality housing stock. It's got everything you need, pubs and shops, but it's generally got quite a lot of green space. So if you think about typically an old mining site, you've got some wasteland areas, some areas where you probably can never build, plenty of scope for country parks, um, 
so, so you know, the sites I've been to uh, are really major on that, actually. Uh, I've been to quite a few of their sites. So they've evolved a bit from those original cardboard assets. I think one of the reasons investors are getting excited about that is they're proving uh, that with new sites that were never part of that cobalt um, portfolio, uh, they're proving pretty good at, at developing new brownfield sites as well. So sites that have come in through different routes. So I think it's a really, really good business, really broadly based. Uh, we don't do a whole lot of real estate. My, my career has generally been focusing on one or two real estate companies in a broader portfolio. Uh, and Harvard's, uh, you know, one that's really delivered for us. It's got a good management team in, in a good sector uh, and a good good end demand for what they do. Uh, kind of nice ESG play in some ways as well. I mean, that does seem to be a bit of an industrial theme running through your portfolio. You've got sort of holdings like Logistics Group, Wincanton, the engineer yeah. Ricardo. Um, then you've got um, a company that makes bits for doors and windows, Timon, uh, another that makes sort of frames for reading glasses. So, you know, it suggests you prefer companies that make sort of a tangible product or service rather than sort of... Um, yeah, do stuff. stuff. So they've got more interesting factories to visit. Yeah. It's a really interesting point. So I think it just goes back to slightly to how we build our portfolio. So we basically have two types of investment. Always have our, I developed this sort of strategy, this way of running money about 20 years ago. Um, uh, when I first started, I worked with an excellent fund manager who's, who's now retired called Ian Scotland. Uh, and I looked at our portfolio and I noticed that the majority of our portfolio, you could find four things that were really common uh, and we call them P3M. You could find a differentiated product and the three M's are market, margin and management, market leadership of the niche, uh, the ability to grow the margin and management who own stock. So P3M is the acronym we use. Um, and the majority of our stocks in our portfolio meet those P3M criteria. We find we think if you can find those at a reasonable entry point, a reasonable valuation, they're good long-term small cap growth stocks. And that's absolutely right. I also realized back then that over time, the stock market's quite good at misvaluing things. Long run, the stock market's efficient. In small cap, it's relatively efficient. But there will always be companies that have fallen out of favor. And generally, these aren't P3M companies. They're not generally the best company in their sector. They, they've never, they're not usually rich in intellectual property, but quite often they are the wrong price. Uh, they're good companies that the market doesn't like for whatever reason. Maybe they've done a bad deal, maybe they've had a bit too much debt. We call those value opportunities. Uh, so they're not generally deep value. They're not binary situations. Will the company survive or not? They're decent companies, but at some stage the fall its market's fallen out of love with. So if we just look at those kind of two industrials you mentioned, inspects, uh, is a manufacturer of spectacle frames, manufacturer distributor of spectacle frames, and designer, designs are very important. Really successful, entrepreneur-led UK business. It's the number one UK spectacle frame maker. It's a big global market. The, the number one globally is called Essilor Lusotica, uh, which is a very successful European business. Uh, Inspex is, is, is a, a much, much smaller but growing competitor uh, based in Bath. Uh, it has manufacturing in in the UK, uh, in Italy, and uh, also in Vietnam. So uh, broad uh, global manufacturing base, really good at what it does, classic P3M play. Um, Wincanton, been Wincanton quite a long time, uh, probably made nine, eight or nine times our money in it since we first invested. Um, and Wincanton is a business that does what it says on the channel on the side of the lorry, perhaps would be more appropriate. It's a trucking company. But it's actually really good at being a trucking company. Uh, it proved during the pandemic how good it was at managing driver shortage, managing the complexities that pandemic threw at it uh, by being very good for its clients, delivering on numbers, actually beating numbers generally. 
uh, didn't raise new equity, didn't come back with cap in hand, sex, two tough guys. Um, and it does a lot of e-commerce logistics. It does defense logistics. It does food logistics, really broad-based uh, construction as well. So, so for us, when Canton at nine or 10 times earnings is too cheap for the quality of business it is. One of its competitors, albeit one with an e-commerce focus, just been sold for 27 times earnings, I think, Clipper Logistics to GXO. So, you know, for us, when Canton remains good company, delivering well, people didn't like it because it probably had a bit too much debt and it's got a pension deficit. Debt's come right down, so debt's no longer an issue. They've they generated the cash to pay the debt down. Pension, much more control, much more managed pension fund now. No longer such an overhang on the share. So gradually it's been re-rated. Um, so that's a good example of two companies that you might view as industrial. One is logistics. One is very high-end technical design and manufacture. Very much the kind of things we have in our portfolio. So P3M does lead you to companies that make things, although you know, we've got lots of software companies, uh, we've got a cinema chain because it's the leading top-end cinema chain in the UK, every man. Um, so you know, it doesn't have to be widgets, but yeah, you're right. It does. We often we don't really look at the fund by sector, but you often end up with a bit of an industrial uh, um, type bias. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to have you on. Well, thank you very much for your time. And finally for this week, we've got Jenny Owen back with Mad Money, and it's a pretty weird one this week. So people are now paying for things in shops with their hands. Jenny, explain more. So call it sci-fi or call it practical, but microchips under the skin to pay for goods is now apparently a thing. Wherever contactless payment um, are accepted, the wallet more chip can be used. It weighs less than a gram and is about the same size as a grain of rice. Apparently the procedure feels like someone pinching the skin on your hand and the microchip is placed between your forefinger and your thumb. Don't worry about getting it lost or it breaking down. The device is compromised of a tiny microchip and an antenna encased in a biopolymer, which is a naturally sourced material similar to plastic. It also doesn't use a battery or a power source. And unlike new debit cards, it works immediately after being implanted. So no need to remember a new pin until you get to an ATM. Walletmore have sold more than 500 of these chips and the technology is similar to using contactless payment on a smartphone. Now, many Money and Markets listeners will probably think it's a bit mad to get this kind of chip implanted, but a 2021 survey across the UK and EU showed that 51% of people would consider it. Many argue that this kind of technology has proved harmless in pets with microchips and could help more disabled people open doors automatically whereas others debate the privacy and security issues that surround the controversial piece of tech. Um, what do you two think? Would you be tempted for the convenience of never, <laughs> never having to carry a card again? I think it's weird. It's too weird for me. I think it would gross me out a bit. Mm. I like it. I lost my purse at the weekend. I, I didn't. I left it on the bed. I forgot to put it in my bag. I was away in Edinburgh. And, of mm. course, you're wandering out and about, and suddenly you're like, oh, no. <laughs> Have to it go could, back to get it. Yeah, it, it could literally be in the palm of your hand. You're never going to leave your hand behind, are you? So I guess that works. That's but... what I'm thinking. I like it. I would go for it. Jed, would you have one? Um, maybe, but I'm. Uh, I think I'd buy too many things on a whim. So maybe it's good that I've still got a piece of plastic to use. <laughs> I suppose the only thing is that you could get caught out just by you know waving your hands near you know. Something that uh, you, you didn't maybe want to buy, but uh, 
I don't know. I like the sound of it. Uh, that's everything for today. Thanks a lot for joining us. If there is anything you want us to cover or any questions you want answered, please email us podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And thanks for listening. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.